Well, hello friends, Pastor Ian Graham here, and I'm coming to you with our teaching from this past Sunday. And some confluence of events, the Spirit's prompting, and just kind of limitations of time, and even coming off the holiday, I felt like I should cut the teaching time a little short this past Sunday, but there's so much rich stuff in this uh, this sequence of events that we've reached in the big story that the Bible is telling as we've been in this series, Garden of the City, that I wanted to use our podcast medium to kind of uh, just expand upon some of the ideas and make sure that I could cover all that I wanted to cover. And so I'm hoping that this is a gift to you as you sort of ruminate on the story itself and your place in it. And I'm hoping that this will be a blessing and we'll, we'll really round out some of the themes that we have been seeing uh, throughout this teaching series. So wanted to take this opportunity, uh, just kind of an expanded teaching as we've reached the resurrection of Christ. And Paul talks about the resurrection. He says, if the resurrection has not happened, then our faith is in vain and we are still in our sins and we are the most to be pitied amongst all people. The resurrection really is the fulcrum upon which the story turns. And so today we turn to that fulcrum and we recognize what Jesus is inviting us into with the reality that he is risen and is risen indeed. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of The Lord of the Rings, spent a lot of time reflecting on how story works, particularly the story of the scriptures, the gospel story. You know, he and the rest of the Inkling, C.S. Lewis and the like, would gather together and they would compare notes and talk about story. And they'd also talk about faith. And J.R.R.'s first discipline in love was linguistics. He literally invents a whole language in The Lord of the Rings. It's kind of incredible uh, to think about the scope of, of doing that. And when you think of the word catastrophe, for us it connotes something awful, like almost the worst that can happen. Something so wide in scope in its destructive effects, disastrous event. The c- catastrophe connotes this kind of thing for us. But... Tolkien coined the phrase catastrophe" when talking about the resurrection. It'll be helpful just to break down the individual parts. catastrophe, strophe in the Greek, you know, the, the part that we uh, sound out as strophe, uh, means to turn. Kata, what we say kata in catastrophe, means down against or back. And the word you means good, catastrophe is a sudden, unexpected, and wonderful turn for good in absolutely dire circumstances. Now, think about it this way. Perhaps you've played paper, rock, scissors with a little child. You know, there's the the, the generally accepted conventions of the game. Uh, Rock beats scissors, scissors beats rock, uh, paper for still some unknown reason beats uh, rock. But if you're playing with a child, sometimes, They just bust out some aspect of the game that you had not been previously informed about. You know, you're like, rock, paper, scissors, and they're like, rock, paper, scissors, shoot, bazooka. And you're like, wait, wait a second. I didn't know that was a part of the game. Now, when we talk about stories, it's hard for a story to develop when anything is possible. A catastrophe in Tolkien's definition, is not a sudden turn that somehow negates or erases everything that has come before. A happy ending would not be a happy ending unless it had some continuity with what has transpired leading up 
to the, the sudden turn. You know, from, from it seeming that like all is hopeless to a ray of hope breaking through. I don't know about you, but those stories that are often told where we get to the end and we just are informed by the narrator that it was all just a dream, it seems like such a waste of time. Like, what was the point of that? But the stories that resonate deeply in our bones are the stories where there is uh, honesty about sorrow and suffering. But we, we also sense a joy and resolve that runs deeper than the pain and the evil. Stories where evil is named. And often this evil seems insurmountable, but good still proves to be stronger. Stories where purpose is shared by a band of friends. And, you know, we see not only the task that this group of people is trying to accomplish, but we see their relationships. And, and for so many of us, that is what draws us to the stories, is the actual shared life of the characters themselves as they seek to accomplish a mission that is bigger than all of them. Stories where love, self-giving love, is stronger than death. You think about all the epic tales, and we have so many in our day with all you know we and we can we can paint such epic tales with access to uh, special effects. You think of things like the Avengers stories, the Harry Potter stories, the 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 Lord of the Rings stories. They all have different angles of this, but they share these common characteristics. And when we left last week, we were at the moment before the eucatastrophe, at the moment where all seemed completely hopeless and dire. We have, we have to do the patient work of entering the story. You see, sometimes we, because the page, uh, you know, content is so small, we can get from crucifixion to resurrection so quickly that we miss the time that elapses. We miss the emotion that was greeting the disciples as they had watched literally their hopes and dreams be hung on a cross. They don't know what's coming next. And it's at that moment, the crucifixion of Jesus, that we ended last week's teasing. Now Jesus, as we enter the story from the perspective of his followers, was supposed to be the Messiah. The Messiah of Israel, the king in the line of David, who was going to subdue the, the pagan oppressors that stood over the nation of Israel and, and elevate Israel to its promised and rightful place. But as many had put their hopes in Jesus to be and to fulfill this role, they had watched Jesus be handed over by the religious leaders to the Roman authorities, literally the height of religious system and power and the height of imperial system and power converging upon Jesus and nailing him to a cross. Sadly, it would at least appear to the disciples that Jesus was just another failed Messiah, another one who carried so much promise but could not withstand the force of imperial power, just another beautiful soul stamped out by the overwhelming force of history, this survival of the fittest world where might makes right. Jesus, from all appearances, because again, nobody is expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Nobody's expecting for Jesus to have any sort of possibility beyond the grave. Jesus, for all intents and purposes, on that Friday, 2,000 years ago, was a profound failure. And his friends, 
are living in the aftermath of that failure. And they, as we will see in just a moment, have their own fears that they are carrying. They have their own worries about their own well-being. But then, and this is where we pick up the story today, the eucatastrophe, the good turn, the prestige that somehow makes sense of the story, has continuity with what has come before, but is still so surprising that no one saw it coming. Now, this teaching was designed for the first Sunday of Advent, and really we're preaching an Easter sermon on Advent. But Advent is about longing, is about waiting, and we are between two advents of Christ. We, we recognize and we bear witness to the fact that he has come and that he has sent out his Holy Spirit, that he is with us now. But we still await that final advent when he will come in fullness and culmination. And Tolkien captures this tension well, this place that we find ourselves in the story well as we move into our text today. Tolkien says, The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. The story begins and ends in joy. Now, last week, we talked about this theme in biblical studies called recapitulation. Jesus, God in the flesh, the word who brought the world into being, re-narrating our history assuming all of our humanity, healing all of our sins, releasing us from the power of death, God stopping at nothing, as we've said over and over again throughout this series, to be God with us. The cross and the resurrection are not two separate events, but are linked in harmony, and they are inseparable from the life, the incarnational life that Jesus himself lived. The Apostle Peter says in one of the earliest sermons of the earliest church, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. The resurrection is God's eternal yes to Jesus. And thus, as Paul will think about the ramifications of this resurrection, he will talk about all of us who, who are in this world who say yes to Jesus being in Christ. And so just as the resurrection is God's eternal yes to Jesus, the resurrection is, is God's eternal yes to the world that he has made, all of us who are in Christ. Jesus is, as Paul writes, Colossians 1, the firstborn from among the dead. Paul goes on to say in that same passage, and I highly commend this passage to you, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. It says of Jesus, For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself, look at this, all things. Jesus is not just reconciling some things, some people, some elements of creation. No, through Jesus' work on the cross and the subsequent resurrection to bearing witness to the faithfulness of God, Jesus is reconciling all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. God is restoring peace, and we'll see this even more fully as we look at John's account uh, of the resurrection and Jesus meeting with his disciples. In Ephesians 1 verse 10, Paul uses the term sasmai, which means to gather up all things in him, all things in heaven and on earth. Somehow, 
through the resurrection of Christ, the world is being re-narrated. The world, as, as was broken and, and was under a curse through the line of Adam, as we talked about last week in Romans 5, is now under a new kingdom, a new lordship, a kingdom that Jesus has brought near by his blood. Fleming Rutledge says this, God in Christ somehow incorporated the entire history of the human race in his one truly human person, and in doing so, made us participants in his eternal victory. We were prisoners of war in in the territory of the enemy. The cross was the divine invasion of that territory once and for all. Paul, reflecting on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, says, For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Recapitulation, re-narration, Jesus re-narrating the story, the eucatastrophe that suddenly changes the course of the world from hopeless to filled with hope is such an important theme for us to grasp as we look at the story that has transpired thus far because it helps us to begin to glimpse the incomparable depths of the resurrection of Jesus and his love for us. And today, we're going to trace some of the themes that we've seen thus far in the Bible through John's account of the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And my hope is just to highlight a few of these themes that we've seen so far and to see how Jesus' resurrection is not just proof that we get to go to heaven when we die, but is God inviting us to embrace the reality of new creation and to find our lives within the beauty of God's story as he brings it to bear on the world. The resurrection story in John, incidentally, and John has this way from the very first chapter. John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John is calling us back constantly to the Genesis narrative. Genesis 1 starts in the beginning and God's word brings the world to life. And John is is intertwining his story of Jesus with this Genesis narrative to bring us, uh, you know, to, to constantly clue us in. That in Jesus, a new creation, an entire new way of being human, an entire new kingdom is being brought to bear right in the midst of this world. This world that God so loves that he sends his son. And as John begins his resurrection narratives, the first scene that we see is Jesus, the risen Jesus, with Mary. Mary is in that place where she thinks that all is lost. Her hope is gone, and she's just merely going to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, uh, to mourn the loss of this one who loved her so dearly and so deeply. She's not expecting anything wild to happen, and when she shows up at the tomb, she sees that the stone has already been rolled away, and she fears the worst. She thinks Jesus died on a cross. He was dishonored and shamed in his death. Now she thinks... He has been further dishonored and shamed by by grave robbers, by somebody stealing his body and desecrating it. And so she's overcome with grief and emotion. And she sees a being there, a being she doesn't recognize. And she asks this being, sir, if you've taken his body, where have you put him? The being 
responds. And Mary, in talking to this being, which we will soon see as the risen Christ himself, mistakes this person for the gardener. Now again, there are no unnecessary details in the scriptures. The story, as we've noted so far, starts in a garden. A garden of shalom, a garden where God is near, where he walks through the garden in the cool of the evening. Mary misunderstands, but there's irony in her own misunderstanding. Jesus is, in fact, the gardener, but he is the gardener not of a simple garden outside of Jerusalem where graves are kept. Jesus is the gardener of all of creation. Jesus is the gardener who cultivates resurrection life in each one of us. And John is trying to hint us in into the the eternal and the cosmic ramifications of what are going on in his resurrection story. So let's look. We're going to fast forward in that story just a bit to John 20, beginning in verse 19, as Jesus meets his disciples, the resurrected Christ, for the first time. Let's look at the text together. John 20, verse 19. Now, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Now, what's going on here is the disciples were followers of a failed Messiah, at least in the eyes of the world. What would typically happen in these circumstances is not only would the leader be rounded up and executed, but also his followers. And so the disciples are in a locked room for fear of the Jews. And that really should mean Jewish leaders, those who had handed over Jesus because they thought he was blaspheming. And there's, there's good reasons for their misunderstanding. Again, we do poorly when we read the scriptures and when we see somebody who could be an antagonist, when we put ourselves in the shoes of the protagonist. You know, to read the story well is to constantly see in our own lives a reflection of those who oppose the purposes of God. This is what runs in our hearts. And so this text, beginning in John 20, is about the Jewish leaders who misunderstood what Jesus was doing in the world. And that so often is us. And the disciples are hiding in a locked room because they're afraid that they're about to be lumped in with Jesus' insurrection movement that they will be handed to over to the Romans to be crucified. So they're terrified of what's going on here. And it's in this instance that Jesus shows up. Look at what happens. Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. After this, he said, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced. When they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Then the disciples are huddled in that room. They're terrified. And at the place of their deepest fear and anxiety, Notice what happens. The risen Christ comes and stands among them. Remember, death was final. Nobody was expecting Jesus to get out of the tomb. They've locked the doors. They're trying to figure out what to do next. And in the midst of their overwhelming fear and their grief from the loss of their friend, Jesus comes and he stands right in the middle of them. Ecclesia, the place 
where God is, when we are afraid, when we are uncertain, when we don't know what to do next, we don't know what's coming, is right there, right there with us, standing in our midst. Jesus' first words to his disciples as he greets them is not like, how could you? You all left me. What are you doing? Why are you hiding afraid? No, Jesus' first words are not words of condemnation, but of blessing and affirmation. He says to them, peace. And, and this peace isn't like good vibes, that feeling we have when everything feels nice and serene. You know, the Christmas lights are shining, warm cup of coffee in our hands. No, this peace is far more wide-reaching. This is shalom. Dale Bruner summarizes this as Jesus' love, his forgiveness, his favor, and his blessing. The first word of the new world echoes the first words that were spoken over all of creation. It was good. The, the Hebrew tov ma'od, good and very good. Jesus is speaking his peace in this new creation world and saying that same peace that defined the world in the beginning is now here again, the cosmic peace because of the peace that was won by the blood of Christ as Paul reflects in Colossians 1. And Jesus had promised this peace to the disciples before his death. He, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives, but do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. Jesus is saying there is a peace that runs deeper than all the fear, even the very real fears that you experience. There is a peace that runs deeper than all the very real anxiety that we often experience. There is a peace that runs deeper than our wounding. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. And then he shows them. This is not just Jesus trying to coach up the disciples and saying, be encouraged, don't be down. Uh, you should be optimistic about the future. No, Jesus gives them a physical reason for this peace, a physical assurance, a pledge of this peace that they can place even their biggest fears into. He shows them his nail-scarred hands. He shows them his side that was pierced on the cross. Jesus still bears the scars of his victorious death. Dr. Diane Langbridge says, in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus, the risen Christ, is the only one who still bears the scars because he will wipe every tear away from our eyes and he will heal our deepest wounds. The eucatastrophe of the resurrection does not disregard the suffering of Jesus. Rather, the suffering love of Jesus on the cross bears witness to us that suffering, as real and as terrible as it truly is as we experience it, has a limit. Because Jesus has broken their power by his wounds, not in spite of them, we are healed. And as Paul described the new humanity as being in Christ, we are no longer defined by our default operating system. We are no longer defined by our shame and our sin. We are defined by what Jesus has done. And Jesus shows us that our wounds have a limit. And if we are in Christ, isn't it possible that in some scandalous and mysterious way, that even our deepest suffering, even our deepest wounds will stand in eternity as an instrument of God's peace, of his shalom, and a testimony of God's healing, that there is nothing that can overcome the love of Jesus. There is nothing that can overcome his faithfulness to us. 
It's hard for us to imagine this because in our world, wounds often get the last word. They define us. But Jesus is inviting us ever so faithfully, ever so patiently to place our fears in our wounds, our doubts in his hands and in his side that were pierced for the healing of the world to let his first word, shalom, be the last word that is spoken over us, to find our lives and our identities in the reality of his peace. Jesus extends his offering of peace. This is the first word of the new world. And in doing so, John is wanting us to see that there is a new creation being brought to bear right in the midst of this one. John notes that all of this takes place on the first day of the week. John wants us to keep this in view, the writer of the gospel that we're reading, uh, because when God brought the world to life through his word, Jesus repeats this blessing of peace. And then he says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus' life throughout John's gospel is defined by, by the fact that he only does the will of his Father. And John says, when he says that as the Father has sent me, so I send you, he breathed on his disciples and said to them, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, verse 26, going back to the beginning, God creates humanity in his image and then invites us to a task to be fruitful and multiply, to rule alongside the creator God. The Imago Dei, as we discussed in the first week of this teaching series, that being made in God's image is not just a title, but a role, a call to partner with God, to co-create, to steward, to cultivate. Now Jesus says to his disciples, as he has risen on that third day, that as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. As Paul reflects in 1 Corinthians, just as death came through a human, so resurrection, new life is being brought to the world through a human being. Jesus is again inviting us to the work of what it means to be made in God's image. Jesus is fully God and fully human. He reveals what God looks like and at the same time reveals what it means to be human. What a human should look like in joyful, loving response to God's love for us. And he does this by living out the truth, by doing the will of the Father and healing and serving and giving himself to those around him. Philippians 2 reflects on Jesus' life that though he was in equality with God, he did not view equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead gave of himself, the word is kenosis, emptied himself, even submitting to the death of a slave on a cross. But because of his faithfulness, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue should confess And John is trying to get us to see that not only has God restored us, he has renewed his invitation to live out the image of God in our day. The resurrection life is a call to new creation. And John says that Jesus breathed on his disciples and he's very intentionally echoing here Genesis 2 verse 7. It says there that then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Jesus breathes on his disciples, 
making them anew and giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, God makes a temple. The whole world, God speaks into existence. And then he comes and he takes residence up within that world. The Holy Spirit is God's presence, recreating us, guiding us, assuring us. Jesus in John's uh, gospel elsewhere will call the Holy Spirit an advocate. It is the very real presence of Jesus with us. Again, God stopping at nothing to be God with us. Jesus promised his disciples and to us by extension that he would not leave us as orphans, but he will come to us. And John is telling us and is is bearing witness that there is a new humanity breaking out. God is breathing again the breath of life, calling us to live anew in light of our vocation, those made in the image of God. But now we have the gift of God's kingdom. The very presence of God taking up residence in our lungs and in our heart, empowering our lives. You see, God has always been desiring to draw near to us. He's always been desiring to be God with us, God near us, God who knows and loves and walks with us. And throughout the story, people have tried to put God in a box that they can manage. A tabernacle, a temple, a book. We've tried to keep God at arm's length, but God is drawing near, so near. You know, the the image of a breath, of breathing upon is such an intimate image. And Paul, in reflecting on what the Holy Spirit has done in us, he says that it makes our hearts his temple. First Peter will say that we are living stones of a living temple. Jesus breathing his Holy Spirit in us is the literal creator God, Father, Spirit, and Son taking up residence in our lives. We are being made anew. And Ezekiel contrasts that which was before, that which was defined by the old age, the life of the flesh with the life of the Spirit that Jesus has won for us. Ezekiel promises as he's listening to the mysteries of God in Ezekiel 36. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I gave to your ancestors, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Paul will talk about living by the power of the Spirit, putting our flesh, which is our default operating system, to death by walking with Jesus and embracing the gifts of eternal life, things like God's joy and peace, but not waiting for eternity, but embracing them right here and right now. And then Jesus offers this curious phrase, He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That seems a bit of an odd addition to all that's going on here. Yes. But what's going on here is that Jesus is drawing near. He's making us into his temple. No longer does God need a temple that will be built by human hands. And this will become so important because in 70 AD, the temple that was the central point of worship in the life of the people of Israel will be destroyed by the Romans. Jesus is showing us what it means to be sent by God, what it means to be made in his image, that as the Father has sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. 
to be mediators of his presence, to be ambassadors of his kingdom. In Exodus 19.5, as we saw back in that teaching, God says of the people that they will be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Who is it that pronounces forgiveness over the people? Who is it that tells the world what their God looks like? Well, it's a priest. You know, so often when people find out that I'm a pastor, my burden moves from just being kind of a, a relational person in conversation to, to now having something to declare about the God that I serve. People want to know what kind of God is it that you have perceived that you are giving your life to be a priest of? What does that look like? And it's priests. It's priests that are the medium point, the priests that are the fulcrum of the eternal, the heavenly world and the earthly world. It's priests that tell the world what God looks like. But priests usually do their work in a temple, right? But now Jesus is saying to all who apprentice their lives to the way of Jesus, that their very lives are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathes his spirit upon them to fill their lives with the life of the divine. And now he invites us to be mediators of his presence, to walk the world as the pardon of God. Jesus' resurrection is not just a divine proof to say that it's all going to be okay in the end. It's not less than that. But it's Jesus' announcing that there is a new creation, that the word who brought the world to life in the beginning has now spoken a fresh word in the middle of history. His resurrection is a signal for what will be for all at the end of time. And it is put right in the middle and it invites us to live out our vocation. And, and this is so beautiful because Jesus comes to his disciples. He comes to them. And he says that you as are being sent as the Father has sent me. And that, that, uh, that promise applies to each one of us. We are being sent out to all the various places that we live as witnesses to the reality of the resurrection. And if in Christ all things are being gathered up, then all things have significance. All things are a place where we can meet with the living God. All places are holy ground. Not because they are inherently holy, but because God has pronounced his blessing, his yes to Jesus over all the world. Our call is simply to allow the breath of the Holy Spirit to breathe upon us anew. To say no to our fleshly desires, those things that, that define us at a default level, the sort of lizard brain world that we live in, and to receive the grace of God. To receive the new creation heart that was promised to us through Ezekiel and has now been won for us on the cross of Jesus. He has empowered us to live a renewed life. A renewed life of peace, of cosmic shalom, forming the, the, the very walls of our heart. He's called us to live into a new purpose, a new humanity, a new priesthood, declaring to the world, this is what God looks like. This is how good and beautiful and loving and he is. Jesus' resurrection is a call to receive grace and a call to be sent out into the world. It is a call to be his people anew. And we receive and we bear witness to the incredible eternity of God. 
when we live out this resurrection life in the confines of our day-to-day lives. And so today, I simply want to invite you. Perhaps you need to see your life in light of the resurrection of Jesus. Your calling, your purpose in light of the vocation he has pronounced upon you. He has recreated the world and has invited us to be agents of this new creation. To go and live out grace and truth and beauty and joy and yes, peace in every place that we walk in. But we first do that by submitting our lives to him. And today, for those of you who may be listening to my voice and you've never said yes to Jesus, for those others of you who have been walking this thing for a while, but maybe you've been doing so in your own strength, you've been doing so at the capacity of your own lungs rather than receiving the breath of God. John the Baptist says, has this really beautiful prayer that I must decrease and he must increase. And as we close today, I simply want to invite you into a practice of breathing out yourself and breathing in God's Spirit. And so today, let us just simply, in a way of bearing witness to Jesus' presence in all places because he has gathered up all things in the reality of his resurrection, acknowledge that he is here, that he is wanting to do a new thing in our hearts, And that we simply have to receive it by faith. And so would you join with me? Taking a deep breath of the Spirit of God. Breathe out ourselves. Let's do that again. Breathe in the Spirit. And breathe out yourself. Let's pray together. God, we welcome the beauty and the reality of your resurrection. Lord, that the end of history has been brought into the middle to invite us to receive the beauty and the almost unspeakable worth of our identities, God, that we are made in your image and that you would stop at nothing to be God with us, that you love us so deeply, God, that we are your children. And to also receive the beautiful invitation of your calling to be made anew in your image and to live as ambassadors. Lord, as the Father has sent you, so you have sent us. We are the sent out ones into the world, bearing gifts of justice and mercy and a non-anxious presence in a world that is so often defined by mercilessness, by impunity, God, by violence, By anxiety, by chaos, Lord, we are the agents of new creation. We are your priesthood of the beauty of the gardener coming back to his creation and pronouncing new life and blessing over it. Lord, we receive your blessing today. We receive it for our own souls, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And we live out of the abundance of this peace in your world. We love you, Father. We thank you for the gift of your resurrection And we pray all these things in your name, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for allowing me to expand a little bit on this past week's teaching. Grace and peace to you.